Jesus has conquered death, and so that has massive implications for how we live. It, it changes our lives, and, and we are transformed by that truth. So uh, a big, big thank you uh, for that. This morning, uh, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 16, so if you have a Bible in front of you, I invite you to, to open that up there or open up on your, your favorite app or your, plat, your uh, tablet or phone or wherever else. Now this, this Easter, we've been asking the question, uh, what kind of king is Jesus? And we framed the question this way because we are in a time where we're due to the coronavirus and everything going on around it. So many of the systems and the things that we look to for our, our meaning and purpose and, and identity and, and stability have been stripped away in an instant. Uh, jobs, health, our markets, uh, travel, all sorts of freedoms that, that maybe we took for granted, like to be able to walk down the path side by side with someone, you know, all of these things were gone in an instant. And there's a, a passage in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, where, where he was performing one of his uh, feeding miracles. And, and after that, the, the people saw that, that they could take care of their physical needs. And so we read that, that they wanted to take him and forcibly make him their king. And so he understood that and he perceived that, John tells us, and so he, he slipped away and went to be by himself. See, Jesus had a, had a very specific idea of what kind of king he was. He, he knew exactly the king he was supposed to be and, and he didn't want to settle for anything less and he didn't want the people to understand anything less. And so the last two times we've been together, last Sunday and also on Good Friday, just a couple days ago, we've sort of blasted through the book of Mark to see what kind of king Jesus was. And, and here's what we found. A week ago on Palm Sunday, we said Jesus is the king who's always in control. He's the one who submits to the will and the word of God. Jesus is the one who embodies humility. He's the kind of king that embodies humility. And he is the king who alone can save. Uh, then a couple days ago on Good Friday, we, we looked at uh, Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, and we saw that, that Jesus is the kind of king who is unconditionally committed to us. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the, the perfect sacrificial lamb that every other sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed us towards. Jesus is the, the kind of king who endured suffering because he loves us. He's a, he's a kind of king that, that even though we abandoned him, he has not abandoned us. And Jesus is the kind of king who, who gave his life so that we can be made whole again. That's where we've come from. We're going to continue asking that question, what kind of king is Jesus this morning? Now again, just a little bit of context where we are in Mark 16 and in this time frame around Jesus' life. In the decades both before and after Jesus, there were, there were lots, dozens even, of other messianic movements in Israel. Someone would rise up and say, hey, I'm the one that was promised. They'd gather a bit of a following, uh, claim to be the promised one from the Old Testament, and in, in almost every one of those cases, the leader was killed, usually by execution, and that movement disappeared forever. But there's something different about Jesus. Not only did his movement not collapse after his execution, we're still talking about it today. It exploded. And even over the course of the next 300 years, the Jesus movement, this, this uh, Christianity, spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so what was different about this king? What was different about King Jesus? Let's take a look this morning. When we wrapped up our time uh, together on Friday, we read the last few verses of Mark 15, so that leads into where we are today. Let me read for us, starting at verse 42 of Mark 15. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, 
a Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he, he asked him whether Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and, and taking Jesus down, he wrapped him in that linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now what we've seen Mark do in those verses that we wrapped up Good Friday with is, is really important. What he's done for us is he has, he has certified Jesus' death. He gives us uh, reasons to believe that this actually happened. Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known leader, one of the, the top leaders in Jerusalem at the time. He was easily identifiable by those first readers who would have read Mark's gospel. The Roman centurion was an expert executioner. He would not have made a mistake and left Jesus alive. Pilate was the legal authority presiding over this case. And between Pilate and the centurion, if Jesus was not dead, that was their own lives on the line. And then Mark also mentions these two women as eyewitnesses, again, along with Joseph as well, to the burial site. Mark is certifying his death. Jesus is dead at the end of verse 17, or chapter 15, excuse me. But Mark's not done yet, is he? Start the next chapter, Mark 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, they brought spices so that, that they might go and anoint Jesus. And, the, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had just risen, they, they went out to the tomb. And they were saying to each other, who will roll away that stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Again, Mark is being very deliberate in his language here. He repeatedly mentions people by name, and he repeatedly names these women that went. This is his way of, of footnoting or citing his sources for this material. He's saying to us, listen, if you want to check the truth of this story out, go ask these people. They were there, they're still alive, and they can corroborate all that I've said. Now these women had watched the scene unfold at the cross and, and they went and they saw the burial and then they went home to, to their, for Sabbath. But very early that next day, that Sunday morning, they left their homes to go back to that burial site where they had been. And they brought with them supplies to properly perform some of the burial rites of their time since Jesus had been hastily buried before the Sabbath. This wasn't something that would have helped a body at that time, but it was really to help them bring closure to all that had happened for themselves. And as they're walking, Mark tells us they were worried they wouldn't actually be able to get to the body because they remembered that Joseph had put a large stone in front of the grave. Mark continues in verse 4. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And, and then looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. They entered the tomb, and they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and, and they were alarmed. But he, the young man, said to them, don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen, and he's not here. See the place where they laid him. But, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. They were expecting a dead body behind a stone, and instead they were told, he has risen. He's not here. 
Can you imagine how those women felt in that moment? Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine their shock. Imagine how their minds must have been racing. This wasn't something they were expecting. This wasn't something they were prepared for. Imagine how their hearts must have leapt at this news. They shouldn't have been completely shocked, though, should they? Look at the way verse 7 closes. He said, there you'll see him, just as Jesus told you. You should have expected this, the angel tells them. Now remember that throughout the book of Mark, and I hope you've had a chance to give it a read, and if not, give it a read this afternoon or in the coming days, Jesus has repeatedly said to his disciples, I'm going to rise on the third day. We see it in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And just as a bit of a, a literary note here, when we read Mark, he is really economical with his words. He doesn't waste any words. He's rushed us to this point. In his book, he's used the word immediately more than twice as many times as the rest of the whole New Testament does. He's trying to hurry us to the cross, hurry us to this grave. And so if in Mark, with his great economic style, Jesus quote, he quotes Jesus saying something three times, it's likely that he said it a lot more than that. Listen, guys, I'm going to die, but I'll rise on the third day. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise on the third day. I'm going to die, but I will rise on the third day. And yet, as he walked with his disciples, it's, it's remarkable with all this repetition, even with the three times, if it's not more than that, it's fascinating to notice how many of Jesus' male disciples, how many of the twelve, are at this scene with him. None. These women have come, but they have burial spices. Again, they're expecting a dead body. No one is expecting a resurrection here. And so if, if you were Mark trying to create a credible piece of fiction, and you've already repeated this uh, several times, saying Jesus told his disciples he's going to rise again. If you're writing this as fiction, as, as, not that Mark did, but if you were doing that, wouldn't you have at least had one of the disciples go and check it out? If you were making this story up, why wouldn't you have at least one of those disciples say, hey, listen, Jesus said in three days he'd rise. This is crazy. That's never happened before. It's not in, the, in, our, in our purview. We have no idea this, this could possibly happen. Maybe we should just slip by the tomb and check it out. What could, what could possibly go wrong if we did that? But instead, Mark writes that none of them showed up. And the angel, the young man, young man at the tomb, had to remind the women, go, you'll see him again, just as he told you. Uh, Tim Keller is helpful for us here. He says, here's the point. The resurrection was as inconceivable for those first disciples, as impossible for them to believe as it would be, as it is for many of us today. Granted, their reasons would have been different than ours. Now, the, the Greeks at the time didn't believe in resurrection in the Greek worldview. The, the afterlife, once you died, it was actually a liberation of your soul from your body. For them, the resurrection would never be a part of life after death. As for the Jews, some of them believed in, in some uh, future at the end of time general resurrection when the entire world would be renewed, but they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. The people of Jesus' days were not predisposed to believe in this resurrection any more than you and I are. Yet the angel tells them he is risen. And he invited them to see the place where Jesus had been buried, to see the empty spot in the tomb. And then he instructs the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter. He highlights Peter that he's going to Galilee just like he said. His message, Jesus' message to the disciples here through this angel, through the women, is that I'm going to see you again. 
I'm going ahead of you again. I will be waiting for you, just like I said, and I want you back. Now, Mark doesn't tell us about this meeting in Galilee, but Luke does. So if you flip to the end of Luke's gospel, which, which starts right after Mark finishes here, flip to Luke chapter 24. And we'll start reading at verse 36 there. And now as they, this is the disciples, were talking about all these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. Now imagine that moment. They were startled and they were frightened and they thought they saw a ghost or a spirit. But Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? See that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's saying, listen, I'm back, boys. And when he had seen us, he, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, hey, uh, have you got anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and, and he, Jesus, took it and ate it before them. Imagine that the room where Jesus comes back and says, Here, here's the wounds, here's the scars, touch them if you want. By the way, I'm a little hungry, have you got a snack? Imagine sitting in that room watching this resurrected Jesus have that snack. Imagine their minds racing. And then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead. Jesus went to them and he shared a meal with them and he explained to them all that had happened and they recognized him in the flesh. So, in a sense, to, to wrap up and answer the question once for all, what kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the risen, resurrected, having conquered over death, king. Now, during his public ministry, Jesus had raised others from the dead, and now he raised himself from the dead. Death has no hold on him. Jesus defeated death itself. Now, the disciples weren't the only ones that saw Jesus in this Luke passage we just read. In fact, a little bit later in our New Testaments, Paul makes a long list of people that had seen him, had seen the risen Jesus personally, and, and adds that most of them are still living. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. He mentions uh, uh, five appearances of the risen Christ, including one to a group of 500. So this is not just a figment of imagination. This is not a group hallucination. These things happened. Uh, seven appearances are mentioned in the four Gospels. And in Acts 1, verse 3 to 4, it says that for 40 days, Jesus appeared constantly to numerous groups of people. Jesus is the risen king. Now think for yourself. Again, put yourself in these shoes. If you watched someone die, saw them be put in the ground, but then days later saw them again in the flesh and bones, how would you react? If someone said, I'm going to die, but I'm coming back, and they pulled it off, how would that change the relationship with that person? Consider the disciples. None of them stood with Jesus at his trial. None of them went that morning to the tomb. 
But the book of Acts shows us that they were transformed people that took the message of Jesus to the end of the known world. Peter, who denied Jesus three times during his uh, trial, tradition tells us he uh, gained so much boldness, we see him preach in Acts, and we, tradition tells us that he was actually crucified upside down because he didn't think he deserved the same honor to die crucified the way his Lord did. That's not the scared of who Jesus is, Peter, we read before Jesus came back. What changed? They saw the risen king. They saw Jesus, the, reason, the risen king, and they were transformed by it. And so we can be convinced as well that Jesus rose from the dead by these three threads that we've quickly talked about this morning. There was an empty tomb. There's the testimony of many witnesses, and there's the long-term impact of those who followed Jesus. I appreciate how Tim Keller again sums this up for us. He says, listen, Jesus had risen just like he told them he would. After a criminal does his time and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him, and he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to, to pay the penalty for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. That was an infinite sentence, but he must have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday morning, he walked out free. The resurrection is God's way of stamping, paid in full, right across history, so that nobody could miss it. So the question is, how will you respond to the empty tomb and the risen Jesus? See, if you believe in the resurrection, if you uh, are maybe something stirring in your heart right now and said, this, this, you're right, this must be true, there's good evidence to believe it. The, 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 the word is speaking to me this morning. If you believe in it, then everything changes for you. Your eternal trajectory has been redirected towards God. If you believe that, that Jesus has accepted you for Jesus' sake, that's, that's a massive act of grace. You're now a part of the kingdom. You're a part of this kingdom of God that's filled with God's peace, his shalom, now and forever. This kingdom is one where we are, are reconciled to God and to creation and to one another and to ourselves. It changes everything. If Jesus can conquer death, he can take care of us in the midst of COVID-19. He can take care of all the details of our lives. He wants to. Remember, we said on Friday, this was the greatest love story in history that Jesus came. It changes everything for us. We're not even done there. If you flip ahead a little bit further, even to Romans chapter 18, Paul writes for us, if the spirit of him uh, who raised the Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So not only has Jesus conquered death, but he has sent his spirit to live in us. The one who lives in us is greater than every other thing, every other spirit, every other one in the world. He's working in us and through us to draw us to him. When we join
technical difficulties. Where were we? Romans 8.11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So, so the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the one that conquered uh, death, lives in us and through us. So when we join this kingdom, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is, is alive and at work in us, making us new, drawing us to himself, making us the people that we were created to be. And all of this is because of what Jesus, the king, did for us. One last time from Tim Keller. Says, the gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it's a true story, it gives us hope because we know life is really like that. And this can be your story as well. God made you to love him supremely, but, but he lost you. And so God returned to get you back, but it took the cross to do it. He absorbed your darkness. So one day you can finally and dazzlingly become your true self and take your seat at his eternal feast. I'm going to pray to wrap up our time together, to wrap up this text, and then we're going to take communion together, a symbol of that, that feast that he's called us to. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time where we can be together. Thank you that you, you came and you showed us how to live, how to rightly relate to God, to others, to creation, to ourselves. Thank you that you were obedient, that you are the king that, that went to the cross for us, that, that put aside uh, what you wanted, but, but did what you had to do for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Thank you that, that on the cross you took our sin, you took our rebellion, you took the ways that we've walked away from God and tried to go our own ways and, and brought us back to you. Thank you that, as we've said, we, uh, no matter where we are in our lives, no matter what's happened in our lives, we can look to the cross, we can look to the Garden of Gethsemane, and now as well we can look to the empty grave and recognize that you love us and you are for us. We thank you for all of these things. And Jesus, we pray in your great name. Amen. We want to take communion together uh, to remember Jesus' life a death, burial, and resurrection. As I mentioned, maybe if you uh, aren't with family or if you would rather do this you know, in face-to-face through a video chat or a video call or a Zoom call or something after, just send me a note and I'd be happy to, to do that with you a little bit later. But this is uh, uh, for those of us who call Jesus King, who have, have recognized that Jesus is this kind of King who, who loves us, who came for us, who died for us, who is our Savior and so if you're not there yet, by all means, uh, I'd love to chat with you about that later. But you can just uh, let this, this time pass. Uh, with communion, at the Lord's Supper, we are reminded, uh, Paul reminds us to, to look within ourselves first. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 reads, Let a person examine himself then, and then so eat of the bread and, and drink the cup. This means this isn't just something we do willy-nilly. This is a, a, an important uh, spiritual act where we remember Jesus' death his body broken, his, his blood shed. We remember that, that he died for us, and so we are submitting our lives to that king. So we need to look inside ourselves and, and confess the ways that we've gone our own way, to confess the ways that we've tried to be our own kings. This is a time where we also look back to that first Lord's Supper. Luke twenty two nineteen 19 reads for us that, that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. 
And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember Jesus. We remember that he came, that his body was broken, his, his blood was shed, and he did that for us, so we remember that. And finally, it invites us to look ahead as well. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, again, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, maybe that language doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but what we are proclaiming is our allegiance to Jesus as our king. And so again, if you're not there yet, I'd love to chat with you, but just you can let this part of our service pass. So let me pray. We'll, we'll take uh, the juice and the bread, uh, and then we'll have a closing song after that. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for all that you did. Thank you that you did everything necessary to draw us back to you. Jesus, thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. Thank you that they represent your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. This Easter, as, as we remember, again, that that's what you did. That was your mission. That's why you came, was to inaugurate the kingdom of God and, and give your life so that we could be brought back to you. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. We'll flip to that Ephesians, uh, sorry, first. Corinthians 11. Again, Paul teaches us this way. He said, What I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'll invite you, if you have uh, bread or cracker or donut or whatever in front of you, to, to take uh, and eat. Paul continues, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he come. And so let us take the cup to remember uh, Jesus' blood shed for us, he, him as the once for all sacrifice so that we can be drawn into his kingdom, grafted into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters, into the family of God. So let's take and drink together. we continue to reflect let me let me pray for us as the the team comes to lead us in our closing songs jesus again thank you thank you for the bread that reminds us that you gave your body for us thank you for the cup that reminds us that your blood was shed for us that you gave everything for us i pray that as we uh, continue to wrestle with these things as we continue to ask the question, what are we going to do with the empty grave? That you would speak to us, 
that you'd remind us of all that you've done, of these things we've talked about this weekend, and that you would draw our hearts to you. We thank you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.